Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. So this is our last episode of season two. And for this one, we wanted to go back to Ukraine. We've talked a lot over the past few episodes about the war's global fallout. Today, we'll look again at what's happening on the ground and what the next few months might hold. I'm going to speak first to Oli Olika, Crisis Group's Europe Central Asia Director, who listeners will know very well from previous episodes. And then I'm going to chat to Comfort Hero, Crisis Group's President and CEO, and we'll reflect back a bit on the past six months or so. So, Olia, welcome back on. Thanks so much again for joining us. Glad to be back. So we're recording this on Tuesday, shortly after the G7 and NATO meetings last week, uh, and we'll talk about those meetings in a moment. But Olia, let's um, let's start, if we can, with an update of, of where things stand on the front line. So what does the, the fighting currently look like? So with um, the um, with the Russian capture of Lysychansk, the Russians have basically said they control Luhansk Oblast, Oblast being a term for region um, in both Russian and Ukrainian. And the Ukrainians are not particularly contesting uh, this statement. So of the two regions uh, that Russia recognized as independent prior to the start of its uh, special military operation, as they call it, um, uh, on February 24th, uh, one of them is now fully under the control of Russian forces, the Luhansk, uh, Luhansk Oblast. Uh, the Ukrainians' big success of uh, recent days was the recapture of uh, Snake Island, mainly uh, Ostrov, which you may remember from the early days of the war uh, because of the colorful language with which the defending Ukrainian forces told the Russians to go away. But the Russians did, in fact, capture that island. And um, after a period of intensive Ukrainian bombardment, they have departed. And so that's... Uh, that's that's a Ukrainian victory. But uh, on the ground in eastern and southern Ukraine, what we're seeing is just more of the same slow attritional warfare, um, occasional gains by the Ukrainians, more gains by the Russians, but none of it moving very quickly. And Snake Island, that's sort of southwest of Odessa, right in the in this small island in the in the Black Sea, somewhere away from Crimea. Right. So this this is in the Black Sea. This is, um, yeah, south of Odessa, kind of off the coast, um, not actually that far off the coast um, in the northwestern part of the Black Sea. And so the Ukrainians have recaptured Snake Island, but it's mostly the Russians that have been advancing in the Donbass, right, holding, as you say, all of Luhansk and also now much of Donetsk. Look, Luhansk was always going to be the easier uh, one of the two for the Russians to gain control of. Um, they've had more of it for some time. Donetsk continues to be a very slow and difficult fight uh, in which just kilometers change hands. Um, so, you know, it's... Um, it's, and it's been a very long fight to gain control of Luhansk also. So, you know, it's... Um, it is a victory for the Russians, but uh, it was definitely a hard-fought one. So that's the, the Donbass, um, and there's also fighting taking place in the in the south. There's Kherson, which is just above Crimea, and then next to that is Aparizhia, which sort of provides this land bridge from Kherson over then to Donetsk. And Russian forces control much of that area as well. 
Is there, is there a lot of fighting along front lines? Are front lines moving much there? A little bit. Uh, in Herson and Zaporizhia, you see some Ukrainian gains from time to time, but nothing that looks like a major offensive as yet. A lot of contested territory. Um, so just back and f- I mean, back and forth, uh, art- a lot of artillery, attritional warfare. And Olya, we hear reports that in the areas that Russian forces control, Moscow is changing school curricula, uh, changing language signs from uh, you know Ukrainian alphabet to to, to, to Russian, uh, sort of broadly speaking, Russifying areas under the control of Russian forces. I mean, how much do we know about what's going on? We get the reports from the Russians themselves and their images and their videos, and also from the people living there. It's very clear that this is what is going on, right? Uh, street signs uh, renamed, relettered to be in the Russian alphabet rather than the Ukrainian. Changes in school curricula, etc. We don't have a very clear sense of what is happening in terms of arrests. We do hear some of some detentions of the uh, officials who had been in charge in these places when uh, Ukrainians were in control, but it's not 100% clear what's happening, where, and under what conditions. the Russians certainly want to tell the story that they are liberating these areas and that people are excited to see them and enthusiastic. Of course, the Ukrainian narrative is quite the opposite. And, you know, to be honest, it's easy to imagine that most people are just trying to get by, survive and wait this out. Because people haven't been taken to the streets in, in protest in large numbers, right? I mean, presumably it would be, would be pretty intimidating to do something like that in any case. We've seen a bit of it here and there over the course of the last few months, um, but and certainly there's frustration, you know. But it takes organization. So yeah, every once in a while people do this, uh, and I'm certain that there are people who are stockpiling weapons and preparing uh, other sorts of resistance. It's just that um, it's hard to imagine under current conditions that being particularly successful. And so front lines in the Donbass, in the south. But over the past couple of weeks, and particularly around the G7 and NATO summits, we also saw, and correct me if this is wrong, an uptick in Russian missile strikes on other parts of Ukraine on the West, including this one that that hit the shopping mall in Klemenchuk, which had a very heavy civilian toll. I mean, do you have a sense of what Russia hopes to gain with these strikes? So look, um, it's impossible at some level to know whether they are intentionally striking civilian targets, whether they are aiming for military targets but have bad aim or bad maps. Um, and, you know, I think part of it is that they may have bad aim and bad maps, but they're not necessarily um, going to be that unhappy if the result is a strike on a civilian target, if it has the effect of cowing the population, which it may or may not do, right? Because the other possibility, of course, is that it energizes the population, which seems to be how it's working up until now. Uh, we've also seen more um, Ukrainian strikes, or we assume they're Ukrainian strikes, uh, into Russia and certainly into Russian-controlled parts of Ukraine. And I think that's also going to continue to be a, a facet of this war. So these strikes, they're meant to do a number of things, right? They have the purpose of reminding the adversary that, you know, we have missiles, we can reach these things. Insofar as they are um, 
targeting military facilities, warehouses, depots, or supply lines. They're intended to degrade uh, military capacity. And they are also, I think, um, intended to send signals to the rest of the world, right, that this war is continuing, and it's not just attrition warfare in eastern Ukraine. And what does all this say for now about Russia's goals? I mean, to the extent you know them, and I know you and the, the team talk to people close to the Kremlin, what does this say about you know, whether Russia's sort of immediate goals and you know, then its longer term hopes in Ukraine? I mean, how much of those evolved over the past few months? So we continue to have absolutely no reason to think that Russia's overall political goal in Ukraine, the reason it is fighting this war, has changed in any way, right? So the way we usually put it... Um, colloquially, is that Russia is looking for a vassal state in Ukraine. Russia is looking for decisive influence over the Ukrainian government. It's looking for a Ukraine that does what Moscow tells it to do, not a Ukraine that um, tells does what Washington tells it to do, which is how Russia looks at the current Ukrainian government. Um, of course, the current Ukrainian government does not do what Washington tells it to do, but that is the Russian perception of things. Um so this is what it continues to want. Um, how do you accomplish that? You know, that's, um, it, you apparently do not accomplish it by invading Ukraine along multiple axes, uh, to the, to the cheers of the Ukrainian people who then overthrow their government and you can install your own government, which was apparently plan A. So now perhaps you do it through a long-term fight in which more and more of Ukraine is lost over time, which makes it harder for government to stay in power until it capitulates and maybe signs the deal that Russia wants. Uh, maybe you do it, uh, I mean, it, you know, there's a, one, one expert, uh, said to crisis group that basically every time the Ukrainians do something that the Russians don't like, the Russian territorial goals are going to get that much bigger. They're going to intend to cut off that much more of Ukraine. Um, whether that's the actual strategy or, and whether that's even attainable, right? Uh, not so clear. But the point is to intimidate the Ukrainians and, with the end result of getting the Ukrainians to recognize Russian influence and effectively sovereignty uh, over Ukraine and getting Western states, getting the world to recognize that this is Russia's rightful sphere of influence and Russia belongs in charge of Ukraine and certainly other former Soviet countries like Georgia, Moldova, Belarus, um, and that nobody should be contesting its right to them. And Oliev, Russia's longer term goals, as you say, they, they haven't changed a vassal state, a pliant government in Kiev. That's the longer term uh, aspiration over time. But could it also be that the Kremlin, if front lines sort of largely stay where they are for some time, could it be that the Kremlin settles now for, for sort of those areas, uh, sort of markets that back home as a success? We've not seen that be what they're talking about, right? We've not seen any evidence that they're looking for a negotiated settlement where they get to keep the territory they've got and uh, everybody calms down. In fact, um, what they keep saying when there is talk of negotiations is, you know, they're happy. They're happy to end the war as soon as the Ukrainians capitulate. Um, their territorial goals have, have increased, right, from the... Um, 
Luhansk and Donetsk regions to now Zaporizhia and Kherson, and again, to more territory than they actually hold. So, you know, kind of this notion that you can negotiate and end this, um, that's not what the Russians seem to be saying. I mean, the Russians seem to be quite uh, intent on continuing to fight and continuing to gain territory from the Ukrainians, even if they are doing it very slowly. And that's um, that's explicit. Moscow says that now explicitly that they're not going to give up Kherson and Zaporizhia, that it goes beyond the sort of initially proclaimed goals, the independent statelets Moscow recognised in Luhansk and Donetsk. Well, I guess it's true that they're also introducing new school curricula, changing roadsides, russifying areas they control, including you know not just in the east but also in the in the south, right? Everywhere where they are in control, that is what they are doing. Um, yeah, they're also introducing Russian passports. And so for now then, I mean, there's been this talk of making sure that Moscow has an off-ramp if it wants one. But from what you've said, it, it's pretty clear that for now, the Kremlin isn't looking for an off-ramp. The Kremlin does not seem to be looking for an off-ramp. Um, look, and it has an off-ramp. Uh, it's not as though there's ever been the absence of space if the Russians want to back away there will be a clamor to accept that and to make some sort of a deal now at this point I think there are there is a pretty strong western desire to limit Russian capacity to aggress under any circumstances whether this war continues or if it is paused or ends in some way but you know nobody is going to not welcome a Russia that wants to make a deal. And Western leaders have been very clear that any deal the Ukrainians are okay with is a deal they are okay with. Um, but we've seen nothing from Russia that suggests they're interested in a deal. So if that's what Russia wants, an obedient government in Kiev to hold on to the territory that Russian forces now control at the very least, if that's what Russia wants, what are Ukraine's goals, pretty much the polar opposite, right? A sovereign government able to charge its own foreign relations and to recapture the territory that Russian forces control. Absolutely. I mean, Ukraine does not want to be beholden to anybody unless it chooses to be beholden. It uh, it wants to be recognized as a sovereign state making its own decisions, and it wants its territory back, um, all of it. Now, you know, kind of, if you look at the situation on the ground, it's a little bit difficult to chart the path in which they get it all back, uh, absent the Russian forces somehow giving up and melting away. But, you know, I think from the Ukrainian perspective, nobody expected them to still be a sovereign state on February 24th, right? The fact that they were able to mount a pretty substantial opposition to the Russians and that the Russians were not able to implement their original plan, um, you know, so basically if you worked a miracle once, why wouldn't you hope that you can work a miracle a second time? Um so I think this is, for the Ukrainians, there is this, okay, you know what, the Russians have personnel problems. Um, the Russians maybe have a lot of equipment, but they're also losing a lot of equipment. The Russians gave up on Kiev and central and northern Russia and went home. If we keep fighting, if we keep getting the Western gear, if we can train up our forces, 
even if we can't mount effective counterattacks that are going to get back all the territory easily, maybe if maybe the Russians will get sick of continuing to pour men and the Russians poor men, the Ukrainians poor men and women, uh, the Russians will get sick of continuing to pour uh, men's bodies into this fight and go home. But the Russians don't seem to be of that mindset. And we'll talk about different scenarios for the weeks and, and months ahead in a moment. But, but for now, fair to say that Ukraine is also not looking for a ceasefire or to, to pause the fight. No, I mean, kind of my conversations when you, you suggest such a thing, when you say, hey, uh, a, a pause, even if it's not official, would give you time to get everyone trained up and equipped so that people aren't being sent to the front lines with inadequate training, without body armor, etc. Is that something you're considering? The answer is pretty clear no. Uh, we are going to keep fighting. Uh, and I think the concern has always been that any kind of deal to pause fighting would be cemented by the Russians, potentially with the help of the international community. And then the Russians have those gains from which they can then try to work to get new gains. So the Ukrainians are in no mood to accept any Russian gains. And so let's, uh, let, let's come then to, so last week, um, uh, we had the G7 meeting in, in Germany, uh, the NATO meeting NATO leaders in uh, in uh, in Madrid. Um, obviously, big shows of support for Ukraine, uh, sort of big displays of, of unity. What, 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 broadly speaking, should we take away from those meetings? Well, I think, um, you know, NATO has never been, I think, in its history, but perhaps as energized uh, and as clear on having a mission and having a purpose. Um, they even managed to get the Turkish opposition to Swedish and Finnish NATO membership, not maybe not fully sorted, but sorted enough that they could invite these two neighbors to join the alliance. So NATO comes out of this with, you know, our mission is to defend Ukraine. It's to protect ourselves and our allies. We're going to build up forces. We have two new, very well-armed allies joining. Uh, we are united and Russia better not even think about any action against any of us. And we're going to keep on backing Ukraine and this is going to make Russia weaker. Um, the G7 meeting, I think you got the same message from the Western states uh, involved in the G7 meeting, but some of the guests and others they'd invited were a bit more doubtful. So that was uh, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who we talked about last week on the podcast with uh, Shiv Shankar Menon. It was also um, the leaders from Argentina, Indonesia, Senegal and South Africa, all invited to the G7 meeting in Germany. So, you know, the challenge of the way that Western states are pushing back against Russia is on the one hand, right, they're arming Ukraine. On the other, they're putting pretty, they've put pretty enormous sanctions on Russia. And this has, this has global effects. Um, the war has global effects because Ukraine and Russia both are major grain, um, grain exporters. 
And with the Russian Black Sea Fleet effectively blockading Ukraine, Ukraine can't get uh, most of its grain out. So this has an impact on global markets. Sanctioning Russia, however much people will tell you that it has the GDP of a small European state, pick one, Italy is often the one that's used. It's a pretty important exporter, importer, global trading partner. So if you cut a lot of Russian trade off, it has a global impact. The energy sanctions have a global impact on energy prices. And in fact, the hiking fuel prices have then big knock-on effects on other commodity prices, right? Absolutely. All of this has an impact all around the world. And I think it's it's frustrating, right? If you are not in this part of the world and you're saying, why does their war have such a huge impact on my household economy? You know, if we have wars, they are able to ignore them. Why is it when they have wars, we're not able to ignore them? And the answer is because they are large economies integrated integrated into the global economy. And this is what happens when the elephants start to dance, uh, the earth shakes. And we'll come back, Olya, uh, in a moment to the sanctions and, and sort of how, how that looks in different parts of the world. It's obviously something we talked about last week as well. But what we've described at the moment, what you've described at the moment, are Russia and Ukraine uh, pursuing incompatible goals I and mean, goals that are entirely contradictory to one another and NATO offering still determined support for, for, for Ukraine. So could we sort of think through then what are the next... What are some of the potential scenarios for the for, for the coming months? I mean, a comprehensive settlement for all the reasons you've talked about that that appears completely off the table for the moment. But what about sort of prospects for, you know, the battle lines at the moment are fairly static, as you say. Russian Russian advances have been costly; they've been slow. But what chance of 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 that changing? I mean, either that sort of you know. Ukrainian forces tire, Russia makes more sudden gains, or conversely, that the, the Western weapons start arriving in more force and Ukraine makes gains and Russian forces, you know, collapse in a way that the Ukrainians haven't. I mean, what are prospects for, for dynamics on the battlefield changing in a way that could really shift how the war proceeds? Predicting wars is really hard. And if there's one thing that this war has already shown all of us military analysts is that we're not that good at figuring out capacity to fight, will to fight, what all of the factors that are going to go into military success are and are not. Still, you know, kind of when you've got something that's been going on for a long time, you you know, people tend to figure the trend lines will continue on in the same direction. So one possibility is you do have continuing attrition warfare. The question has been how long can either or both sides keep this up? The answer is we don't know, but they've already kept it up longer than most people thought they would early on. They're losing a lot of people, right? Both the Russians and the Ukrainians are losing an awful lot of people. Uh, we don't have exact numbers because everybody um, has good reasons uh, to exaggerate, underestimate, or just not say anything. But we do know they're both losing a lot of people. Um, but they seem to have more people to put in. And, you know, unlike at the beginning of the war, when the Russians were trying to do everything all at once, they actually are trying to do a fairly, you know, a smaller operation, which means that they can keep their reserves in the rear, they can rotate people through the battlefield, uh, they can push harder where they want to push harder and try to just hold on to territory where they're just trying to hold on. Um, and they do have a lot of weapons. Some of them are very old. Uh, some of them require repair, but they do seem to have a lot of weapons that they can keep sending to the front lines. The Ukrainians seem to 
also be doing okay on finding more people to send to the front lines. And I would say in both cases, there is evidence that they're sending undertrained and under-equipped people in to this fight, which contributes to the casualty counts, right? Um, aside from the fact that if you've got people who don't have adequate body armor, or they don't know what they're doing. If they also don't know what they're doing for first aid, uh, more people are going to bleed out on the battlefield instead of survive. But there are, the Ukrainians too are able to keep sending men and women into the fr- front lines. Um, so there for, and for weapons, they're getting Western weapons. Now, the thing about the Western weapons is we long ago ran out of the sort of weapons that the Ukrainians just know how to use. So people have to be trained up on these weapons. Uh, that training, a lot of it happens, at least initially, outside of Ukraine, so that Western countries don't have to send trainers into Ukraine, and then follow-on training happens in Ukraine. But all of this takes time. They've compressed these schedules, but then having compressed the schedules, you run the rest of the people aren't adequately trained, so they're going to have trouble operating the equipment. So it's not as though America promises something and it immediately shows up in the hands of capable Ukrainian soldiers. It is America promises something. It chugs its way across to Poland, where Ukrainians get trained up on it, after which Ukrainians um, train their colleagues on it, and then it makes its way to the front lines where it is used. It's a long process. Uh, But the stuff keeps coming. Um, Can it keep coming? Well, most of the NATO member states that are supporting Ukraine have cleared out a lot of their own warehouses. So at some point, it has to be new stuff that's being produced. You also have to backfill what's already been sent to Ukraine. So, you know, you get countries who are saying, okay, we'll send stuff to Ukraine, but who's going to provide us with gear? So this isn't sustainable if people want to sustain it. Uh, indeed, it could be a boon for European and American defense industry. But it ha- you have to make a commitment that that's what you're going to be doing for some time to come. This sort of question of whose side is time on? I mean, you, you really see very different interpretations of this, getting to your point about how difficult it is to predict the way things um, might shake out. But, um, you know, on, on the one hand, you've got this idea that, you know, is, is if the fighting carries on in the sort of same grinding way it has been, slow Russian gains appear more likely. Um, you know, the, 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 the pace at which Western arms arrive, the training that Ukrainian forces will need, uh, the heavy casualties that they're, they're suffering, you know, all those sort of point in the favour of, of Russian gains, even if slow Russian gains. But on the other hand, you also see this idea that, you know, if Ukraine can make some advances, the Russian forces in some places have sort of ceded quite quickly. Russian commanders, when they realize the game is up, have retreated quite fast, that you might not have the same sort of Russian resistance as you have Ukrainian resistance. If Ukrainian forces could get some momentum going, you could have, I mean, I think we talked about it earlier, sort of everywhere becomes this sort of snake island where the Russian forces just give up and and retreat quickly. So you see these very different interpretations. What's your sense as, as the conflict drags on, is it likely to play to Russia's advantage or to the advantage of, of Ukraine and its supporters? I don't think all of the Western gear has been integrated into the Ukrainian uh, forces yet. So let's see if that shifts things. If it doesn't shift things, then I would say, yes, the Russians will continue to have a certain advantage. 
But also, you know, kind of bear in mind the Russian, the slowness of the Russian progress is an important indicator. If you remember how this war looked in 2014 and 2015, when the Russians would send in Russian regular troops every time that the, the separatist proxy forces they were backing ran into trouble, and the Russian troops were always very successful against the Ukrainians. Um, that's not what we're seeing now. So, it is a more evenly matched set of forces on both sides. So you can look at the trend lines and say if things continue the way they are now, then the Russians seem to have something of an advantage. But this isn't something I say with a whole lot of confidence. And I would also say, you know, a few weeks back, my thought was the time was probably more on the Ukrainian side. It's really hard to know at what point the Russians are going to run out of men. And you're also, you're seeing stories of Russian families crowdfunding to get equipment and supplies to Russian soldiers because they're not being adequately supplied by the defense ministry. Um, you know, these are interesting stories. What does one make of them? And how, how does that translate? Do you take that to mean there's a lot of grassroots support for soldiers? Do you take that to mean that the Russian defense ministry is in trouble because it can't supply and support? And from what I understand, on the front lines, Russian commanders kind of rely on a mix of, of, of Russian troops you know, with mixed degrees of training, plus Wagner operatives, you know, fighters from this uh, security company close to the Kremlin, plus separatist forces. I mean, it's a, it's a whole mix that they're using on the front lines, right? Yes. And, you know, people who volunteered and have shown up, and again, who knows how much training or capacity these people bring to the fight. We've definitely seen evidence of uh, Wagner, private military uh, forces being used, including to fly aircraft. What does this tell me about Russian capacity? What does this tell me about... um you know, Russia's 800,000 person military and how many people it can actually put into the fight and which of them are capable of what. We've got the Russian National Guard involved. Uh, a lot of the Chechen forces you'll be reading about, they're technically National Guard. Um, National Guard is not supposed to do offensive operations. The National Guard is supposed to do, you know, high-end policing, um, riot control sorts of things. Um so just what's going on, who's fighting and how they're fighting. But a lot of this is just, you know, artillery being lobbed from one side to the other and then back again. Um, so that's the other aspect of this fight is it's a lot of people sitting in trenches while artillery rains down on them. And uh, Olya, negotiations? I mean, there were talks, political talks, but they petered out some months ago and, and sort of given the difference between the two sides it's sort of hard to see what they would yield if they did restart. Negotiations have stopped, uh, other than for prisoner exchanges um, and so forth. And th those continue. They are continuing to exchange prisoners, um, and they're continuing to exchange remains. Uh, negotiations on an end state, you know, there is a lot of speculation on how real those were, even before they shut down um, now, a now several months ago. These were the talks that Turkey was hosting. Well, first Belarus, then Turkey. Um, there were ideas being put forward uh, regarding final settlements uh, at these talks. But the question of whether the Russian delegation especially had a real mandate to negotiate um, was never satisfactorily answered. 
But those were interesting in that they were useful in laying out the positions of both sides and, and in the end, kind of the lack of overlap between the positions of both sides. So the reason that they were going to keep fighting. And the early stages of the war, there was you know, understandable fear fueled in part by barely veiled threats from the Kremlin about uh, th- that it you know, could use nuclear weapons in response to others getting involved in Ukraine. How much do you see that threat as sort of having subsided a little bit? That, that First, the, the rhetoric seems to have changed, but also that uh, Moscow appears to have accepted that Western governments are going to throw in weapons to Ukraine and there's not a lot that, that Russia can do about it. Look, the thing that worries me most from a nuclear war likelihood perspective is a direct fight between NATO and Russia. Uh, luckily, that seems to also worry both uh, people in various NATO capitals and in Moscow. So from both sides, they have quite studiously avoided things that seem to be likely to lead to a direct fight. Though you do get calls for it, right? You do get calls for things that would put NATO forces... Uh, say, um, you know, escorting uh, ships in the Black Sea to get uh, Ukrainian grain out. Uh, you get, you know, the no-fly zone idea has mostly gone away, but you get ideas like that um, that get floated, this idea that the Russians will back off, right, because they don't want a nuclear war either, so NATO might as well just get into this fight. Um, you hear those. So you hear them, but maybe a little bit quieter than a couple of months ago. Yeah, what you're not hearing from officials is as much talk of the need for regime change in Russia. You're hearing less about the need to put the Russian government uh, up on war crimes charges. In Russia, you still get a lot of TV pundits talking about um, the, you know, the prospects for a nuclear war and how they're going to turn the West to dust, but you certainly don't hear officials saying that. In that sense, the reliance on coercive, threat, coercive nuclear threats on the part of Moscow seems to have died down for the time being. That doesn't mean that the risk of nuclear use has disappeared. But look, I've from the beginning, I've always thought that the odds of Russia just lobbying a nuke at something are pretty low, um, right? It's not like that's how countries tend to use nuclear weapons. I do think that... Both the Russian doctrine, which is nuclear weapons use is appropriate when the existence of the state is at risk and the nuclear deterrent is at risk. Absolutely. Short of that, I think um, that the Russian government's attitude is a little bit if we're going down, everyone's going to go down with us. So again, if they're feeling that that's a real risk, you know, kind of the usefulness of nuclear weapons in this scenario seems limited. You know, kind of this this notion that if the Russians felt they were losing, they would try to signify how crazy they were by using a nuclear weapon. Um, that notion is always out there. Uh, it's non-doctrinal, but not impossible. But again, kind of if I I start to worry when the rhetoric heats up, and I start to worry when I see a real risk of NATO-Russia force-on-force fighting. Right now, I'm not seeing that. So n- not even necessarily if, you know, Ukrainian forces advance, you know, push Russian forces out of the areas they've captured, you know, even as far back as sort of end of February front lines or even further in, in, in Donbass. I mean, I don't know, right? But you have to kind of tell yourself the story of how this works. 
Uh, so another miracle occurs. The Ukrainians start winning. The Russians are forced to back out. They would, and the Russia, you know, presumably the, the Russian government decides, oh my God, our government is going to fall because we're losing this war, which is a bit of a jump, right? You have to tell yourself a story about how that happens. But okay, let's say you've thought up a story for how that happens. And then they say, okay, we're going to use a nuclear weapon to get out of this mess. We're going to do what? Uh, bomb Lviv? I mean, and then the Ukrainians will say, oh, never mind. We're going to stop advancing. What's the logic to it? Even leaving aside how, you know, Ukraine's Western supporters would respond. And Ukraine's Western supporters have made very clear the unacceptability of nuclear use. So could we come back to the sanctions policy uh, we talked about a while ago? This is perhaps the aspect of Western policy that's maybe most contested in different parts of the world. Broadly speaking, the goal of the sanctions is to contain Russia uh, to weaken Russia, to inhibit its ability to you know, not just fight the war in Ukraine, but potentially conduct sort of similar aggression elsewhere. How much evidence do you see that they're going to be able to achieve that goal? So I do think the sanctions are affecting the Russian economy. We certainly see that. The problem, of course, is Russia can just keep pouring money into defense instead of other things. Then you have to ask, is it pouring money into defense effectively? How much of the... Um, Poor performance and the problems that we've seen on the battlefield are a result of mismanagement of defense spending over the course of the last however many years. And can they improve that and fix that and spend money better, uh, particularly without access to Western parts, you know, all of these things that they have to make up for uh, going forward. But in terms of diverting resources, they've got, you know, got decades of the Soviet experience to show that... Um, Governments run from Moscow know how to divert uh, resources to defense. It's going to be harder for them. And then the question is, if you have impoverished your population, can you keep that going? Some of the reporting we're hearing from major metropolitan areas like Moscow and St. Petersburg basically say that the war doesn't affect them. But if you go out into poorer parts of Russia from where many of the soldiers uh, are coming, uh, people who don't have a lot of options where the economy was already in bad shape, and you think about what happens in those places when the economy goes downhill even further, um, what's the impact on that? Well, one cynical view is you'll have more men willing to sign up and join the armed forces because there are even fewer jobs. But, you know, are there other effects? So I think this is another one where it's really hard to predict exactly how this plays out. Um, Western states imposing the sanctions are banking on this constraining Russia and making it harder for them to be aggressive. Russia is banking on being able to survive it. And also on the sanctions eventually going away one way or another, potentially because there is pressure from the global south, potentially because they get uh, success on the enough success on the battlefield that the Ukrainians are forced to capitulate and then what everyone's going to keep all the sanctions on. Um, they won't. I think there are a lot of possibilities that the Russians are trying to factor in, but the message they're sending is we'll manage. One option for the sanctions would be that Western governments make clear what Russia would have to do to get certain sanctions eased. Uh, you know, that let's say it was prepared to, 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 to compromise, to make some sort of a deal that was acceptable to, to, to Kiev. 
um, then some of the sanctions should be lifted. I mean, and that that would you know gradually provide a set of incentives for Moscow to do things it might not be inclined to do now. I mean that clearly that would be a logical thing for Western governments to do, but it seems sort of peripheral in, in the way it's going to shape Moscow's calculations. It doesn't seem it's going to have much of an impact. But what about sort of conditioning lifting of some of the sanctions on its blockade of the Black Sea ports that's stopping Ukrainian grain getting out? I mean, is that, which is something that obviously a lot of countries across the world care about uh, because it impacts directly the commodities crisis. I mean, what, what, what do you make of offering to lift some sanctions on that basis? Well, the Russians have said, lift all the sanctions and we'll be happy to let all the grain go. Um, there are a number of fundamental problems here, right? Uh, one of them being, how does that work exactly? Do they then remove the Black Sea fleet from the Black Sea? Uh, right? Because it's, um, it's an effective blockade. It's because the Black Sea fleet is there and people don't want to engage it. Now, the other issue, of course, is that both Ukrainians and Russians have mined pretty heavily um, the Ukrainians have done it because they don't want the Russian Black Sea attempting to land in Odessa or elsewhere along that southern coast. Um, how are you going to convince them to take those mines out? Uh, because the Russians have said that they're not going to do anything. If I were Ukrainian, I would not um, be terribly enthusiastic about that. So, you know, it's much more complicated than the Russians should lift the blockade and then we can lift some sanctions and everybody will be happy. Um you know, so that's, that's one aspect of it. Um, the other aspect is, of course, you know, are you rewarding that behavior? Are you then feeding the Russian military complex, et cetera, et cetera? There's not a lot of Western appetite for rewarding Russia for pretty much anything, though there might be a decent amount of Southern appetite for doing it. So things currently look to be settling into a into a protracted war. Neither side looking for a way out for now, fighting with all the difficulty of making predictions, fighting, continuing uh, for now in eastern and southern Ukraine. And of course, Ukraine and its western backers have been living with Russian-backed separatists in the east and Crimea annexed since 2014. But obviously, this is war on a different scale and, and dramatic changes in perceptions in European capitals, justifiably about the threat that Russia under its current leadership poses. So how does this look then in the months ahead for for European security, for the European security architecture? I mean, we've talked already about some changes, Finland and Sweden looking to join NATO, assuming that Turkey's objections have actually been overcome. So that's one aspect to it. We've seen NATO troop buildups in other parts of Europe along Russia's border. But what else? I mean, what does this sort of mean in the in the year or so ahead? I think we're seeing a new European security architecture take shape, which is an architecture of um, deterring Russia, building up forces, um, sending more forces to reassure NATO allies closer to Russia. Um, it'll be interesting to see on the Russian side how they build up and what they do uh, ostensibly to deter NATO from attacking Russia. Um but we're going to be seeing, unless something changes pretty drastically in this war, a lot more money spent on defense and a certain amount of instability that's built into the system where people who want to push back more forcefully against Russia, uh, people who think that the support to Ukraine has been inadequate, make that case. And as frustration mounts, you know, if the war continues, 
those voices will be warring with the voices that say this isn't working. We need to force the Ukrainians to cut some sort of a deal. Um, if there is a pause or there is some sort of a deal, then it's going to be preparation for the next crisis, right? And then in the next crisis, this is something that concerns me that we've talked about before, there is a very strong possibility that there will be people saying the only reason we're in this next crisis is because we did not respond adequately in 2022. So we need to respond more forcefully now. And I think the escalation risks become very serious at that point. And what, for now, it appears that relations between Western capitals and Moscow are, for all intents and purposes, they're, they're, they're broken. The relationship has collapsed. Western governments obviously trying to isolate Russia, for the most part, not engaging their Russian counterparts. I mean, there's some exceptions. Some UN Security Council business maybe hasn't been as badly affected as we might have expected, although, you know, still early days. But generally, things seem to be sort of shaping up uh, almost towards a new Cold War, and yet the world is obviously much more globalized today. Problems that it's facing, as everybody knows, everybody says, can only be tackled by war powers working together. So what do you sense this might look like in the years ahead? I mean, is it feasible for for Western governments to sort of ignore Russia, treat Moscow as an outcast, especially if much of the world is not doing the same? So I'm not sure the goal is to entirely isolate Russia. I think there is recognition that there are some things that will require some level of engagement. I think the goal is to weaken Russia so that it cannot be aggressive. If we think back to all, all those months ago to February, the expectation in the West, in Moscow, and quite probably in Ukraine also, was that Russia would be successful in its military campaign. And then you would have this effort to build up forces to deter Russian action elsewhere on the part of Western states. And in Russia, an effort to figure out where it goes next to make sure that Western states recognize its right to influence in its neighborhood, however it defines it. So what the the Ukrainian success early in the war and then the slowness of Russian progress, um, even after they restructured their war effort to focus uh, on the east of Ukraine, has done is opened up this other option in which you could actually limit Russian capacity now through sanctions, through the war itself, the idea being to do some damage to the Russian war machine now and into the future. Um, the idea being that maybe you don't have to sustain it all that long if you can, you know, if you can do it successfully now. Now, maybe you can't, and then you have to keep it going. And you do run into all of these problems as a result, but there is no foreign policy that doesn't have its costs and benefits and its risks. And I think if you're looking at this from a Western standpoint and you're looking at the risks of further Russian aggression, um, those are unacceptable risks. If you can do everything you can in the present moment to get to a place where Russian capacity to aggress is lower, you're going to get a more secure world. So that's what you're trying to do. Olya, thanks so much again for coming on today. And well, really, thanks for all your appearances over the past few months. I mean, it's always illuminating. Thanks for having me again. Um, looking forward to doing this again next season. And if people want to hear more of Olya, you can also catch her on our sister podcast, War and Peace, which she hosts, and which focuses on European security. And so I'm now very happy to welcome on Comfort Eero, Crisis Group's president and CEO, 
as it's the last episode of the season, we thought we'd take the opportunity to look back a bit, take stock of the past season and some of our episodes, and more broadly to reflect on what's been some pretty turbulent and troubling months in world politics. Comfort, welcome back on. Thanks for joining again. Thank you, Richard. Nice to be back on in the last episode of the series. So there's obviously a lot that's happened over the last six months. It's not all about Ukraine, but clearly much of it has been overshadowed by uh, Russia's war in Ukraine. And we're recording this the day after I recorded the interview with Olya. I know, Comfort, you've seen the transcript. So why don't we start then with with Ukraine? I mean, any any reflections looking back and, and sort of on where things stand now? Um, yeah, thanks, Richard. And I, I read the transcript from, from Olya. I mean, when I look back to um, just even before the invasion. So in December, we anticipated some kind of military adventurism. The scale of that adventurism, the timing of that, and the, the, the duration we weren't, we couldn't predict. But we also said, you know, take Putin at his word. So to see how that has unfolded, I think has been worrying. The, the other sort of surprising element um, in this is the assumptions that a number of people went into, including on the Russian side, that this would be a very quick um, victory within days, that um, the Ukrainians will capitulate and the Russians will roll in victorious um, regime change and all those things. And in fact, we've all been struck um, by the way in which the Ukrainians have been able to resist um, push back and fight. And of course, we've all talked about, especially on the various podcasts, that there are a number of miscalculations, um, as poor assumptions, um, poor intelligence on the, on the Russian side. Six months down the line, Richard, I think what worries us now, um, is that this is a protracted, long, drawn out conflict. Um, Olya herself, and I was struck by what she said, um, it's not very clear where this is going to, to end. Um, there's no clear path towards a settlement. That obviously is just, is just worrying in terms of what it means for Ukraine, for Europe and, and for the world in terms of the ramifications from the conflict. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, reflecting back on some of our episodes over the past season, obviously we've had Olya on the podcast a lot, which has been great. We've had a lot of other colleagues come on looking at the implications in areas that they work Iran nuclear talks, Venezuela, Nagorno-Karabakh, Libya. We've also had different trustees on, which I think has been, you know, also really interesting. So Andrei Kortonov, you may remember quite a moving uh, episode on the view from Moscow. Gerard Rowe, who gave a sort of tour de force of geopolitics after Ukraine. Alexander Staub, Shushanka Menon over the last couple of weeks, two very articulate expressions of views, respectively, from Finland and, and India. So that's also been, I think, interesting and I hope useful for people to hear about the war, about its global fallout through different lenses and, and different angles. You know, thinking back to the end of February, I don't know if you remember, Comfort, we talked in the first podcast after the invasion about this sort of sense of dread, of foreboding about what this meant, not just for Europe, but for the world more broadly, what it said about the mindset in the Kremlin, its views of Russia's interests, Moscow's relations with its neighbours, the sort of general general lawlessness. And, you know, of course, we need to be careful with double standards. I should say that the team around President George W. Bush when they went into Iraq was also pretty unsettling. But this just felt very, very shocking. It felt as though we were entering a much more dangerous era. And sort of fast forward to today, I was sort of thinking, is that sense of foreboding still there? I mean, should it be? And, and was it justified at the time? And 
And maybe people now are sort of getting used to this fighting in Ukraine's east and, and south. I mean, obviously not if you're if you're there and you're in the areas affected. I mean, it's a war that's killed. We don't really know, but tens of thousands of people at least displaced, maybe as many as 12 million, you know, caused enormous destruction and, and suffering. But when you're sitting further away, I think the, the shock has to some degree worn off. Ukraine's going further down the front pages. Plus, of course, Russia has got bogged down for now. The nuclear brinksmanship uh, has to some degree subsided. As we talked about, the risk of direct war between NATO and Russia is still there, but maybe doesn't seem quite so immediate. But, you know, all that said, I think it's important to sort of keep reminding ourselves what a game changer this is. You know, the mood so far in Western capitals, understandably, hasn't softened in any way. Maybe it will change over time within electorates and politicians will then sort of have to respond to that, maybe. But relations with Russia under President Putin won't recover. I mean, absent a real change of heart in the Kremlin, the hostility between Russia and the West is set to shape European security, maybe global affairs more broadly for years to come. And of course, the danger of escalation between nuclear powers, you know, that danger hasn't gone. It could happen over Ukraine. If there was an unexpected turn of events, it could happen, as Olya said, over the next crisis, but it is still there. Plus the war comes on top of a lot of other things over the last decade or so, some of which I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment. And so I think it's reasonable, as you argue, that the past six months have really set the stage for a much more disturbing future, certainly, but I don't think only for European security. I mean, that's the first thing. Second, maybe I'd say that the Western response, you know, as we've talked about before, overall, and we'll talk about some of the exceptions to this, generally has been pretty good. I mean, crisis group we're certainly not shy to criticize western policy you know, hopefully constructively where we feel that's deserved we haven't pulled our punches on afghanistan for example which maybe we'll come back to a bit later but on ukraine the western response has been pretty good western powers have stayed largely coherent and united broadly speaking they're all singing from the same sheet notwithstanding some differences in nuance western intelligence has been accurate so i think the question if you're sort of looking ahead is you know, how much has that depended on having President Biden in the White House, a reasonably conventional president, uh, one that values the US's traditional alliances, values NATO? How different could things have looked with the different leadership in Washington? And frankly, also, if, if Marine Le Pen had been elected in France, for example, I mean, is this strong show of unity within NATO more precarious than it seems? And again, as winter approaches, higher energy costs, you know, is the mood going to change? So I think that's that's certainly something to watch. But maybe, you know, I think it's important to recognise the positive on the Western response. But there's also an element that, you know, we've been more critical about. And that's the way that the G7, for example, the way that Western powers have, have managed the global fallout. And so, Comfort, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. I mean, in particular, to sort of return to this theme that we covered in previous episodes, that many countries across the world, especially in the global south, to use the sort of least offensive catch-all term, uh, have distanced themselves from the West's efforts to isolate Russia. On the whole question about the global south and how it has reacted and its own position um, on this, I think there's one thing that um, Shushenko Menon said in his conversation to you, Richard, that I'd like to open with, which, and I think it's important just to re-emphasize this. And coming from somebody who was a former foreign secretary of India, you know, and a national security advisor, I mean, he was very clear that what is not 
what is not being questioned here by any of the, the countries that come under the umbrella of Global South. Um, what is not being questioned is the territorial integrity of Ukraine. Um, there is recognition of Ukraine's sovereignty and its right to decide its path as well. Um, but what was interesting about his conversation um, was that he wasn't going to be bound up by what he called the moral argument. One could almost say what he was referring to as double standards about where we stand um, here. The other thing that I found very interesting about his conversation was that he, he challenged this notion that the, the global order was being usurped as a consequence of Russia's invasion. And he said, what is up for debate or what is being, um, what is under threat is the current European um, security architecture. My own caveat to what he said, and I think he would agree that um, when we say that when Europe sneezes, with the rest of us, the rest of the world catches a cold. And how have we caught that, that cold? Well, first is the, is the food crisis, then is the debt, then is the energy crisis, um, and this is against the backdrop of, of the pandemic and then also climate change. So the international environment, as we all acknowledge, was already in a precarious um, dilemma before Ukraine. Um, the fundamental issues um, that we've talked about, whether it's around debt and climate change and pandemic, these were already fraught before we entered into Ukraine. I think what is at the heart of the criticism or the concerns from the global south and, you know, I, one thing I should emphasize that it's not homogeneous, but nonetheless, one of the concerns that has come out of the global south um, is the unevenness. I mean, I- Iraq is not lost on the global south. They, they continue to use that to beat the West um, in terms of its own um, reactions to, to, to Ukraine. Um, they also, as you rightfully note, question the way in which the West has been maximalist on U- Ukraine. Um, they they mention other files that haven't been addressed, and I, we should talk about those other files um, later. But I do want to unpack the the issue around the food crisis, Richard, and sort of want to agree with the thing. One of the points that you made that it's the high prices is not all about U- Ukraine, um, and that the economic environment was already fraught before this. But one of the things that have been exposed yet again um, by Ukraine, it was already there because of the pandemic, was just the inequality of the international financial um, architecture. So it's not just European security architecture that needs to be um, reformed. And one of the sort of op-eds um, that I think speak clearly to the concerns was written by our board member, our founding um, chairman, um, Lord Malek Brown. And the title, I think actually captures the concerns of the Global South when he says the world needs more than crumbs from the G7 table. And, you know, that article itself is worth reading it. And it's, again, a perfect example, I think. The conclusion is, yet again, the global powers meet. Um, they give the impression of care and concern about the issues of the, of, of the rest of the world. But yet it's really much about their agenda and less about the, the rest of the world, paying secondary attention to all the sort of bread and butter livelihood issues that have been exposed yet again by by Ukraine. If we thought the world was unequal as a result of the pandemic, yet again we've seen that as a as a consequence of of Ukraine. Yeah, such a such a great point, and you know, as you know, I agree very much with uh, with, with all of that. I thought, as you said, that Mark's uh, that Mark Mallet Brown's piece in the New York Times on the G7 meeting captured captured it very well. Um, I mean, Western leaders say they recognise why views in many other countries are different, right? I mean, I remember 
I remember the German foreign minister gave a speech, I think, during the early days of the war in New York. And she said something like, you know, we hear you. Uh, you know, it was a very good speech. But generally, there seems to be this sort of tone deafness uh, in some ways to the concerns of, of other parts of the world. And especially you know, the G7, in some ways, it was even more striking because the leaders of what, India, Argentina, uh, Indonesia, South Africa and Senegal were, were, were there. You know, there's this this sort of very stark contrast between the time and money spent on Ukraine and those that Western leaders are spending on things that the the rest of the world uh, cares uh, equally or, or more about. And of course, Ukraine is going to be in, and should be important for Western capitals, but it's going to be very hard to win support in the global south for Ukraine for other things that the West cares about if Western leaders aren't prepared to demonstrate more firmly that they're they're ready to act on the things that the rest of the world cares about, you know, the commodities crisis, in particular, the debt crisis, the climate crisis, you know, climate funding. And it's not just winning over the global south. I mean, especially the food and the fuel price hikes, they're potentially going to lead not just to, 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 to a lot of suffering, but also potentially to instability. I mean, we talked about this on the on the podcast before that price hikes don't necessarily cause unrest. You know, some countries may be able to um, intimidate or buy their way out. But clearly, in places where relations between people and their governments were strained, you know, even before the pandemic, even before the Ukraine war, the commodities crisis is going to be potentially extremely uh, destabilizing. So there's strong reasons for Western capitals, you know, in their own self-interest to do more, to commit war resources, to, to, to try to help. And, you know, in some ways, the, the, the sanctions policy is, is part of this, and this probably deserves a a longer discussion because, of course, there's you know, very good reasons for the sanctions. That's what Western leaders threaten Russia if it, if it was going to invade. And it's also not right to blame sanctions alone or even mostly for a commodities crisis that has you know, many causes, not least Russia's blockade of, um, of Black Sea ports. But it's also not accurate to say that sanctions don't contribute in some way, which you know, some Western capitals sort of assert. And, and it's also not really clear that that sanctions are going to curb the, the, the Kremlin's behaviour. So it's a difficult one, and I'm sure something that we're going to come back to. But Comfort, I wonder uh, what you think of the argument that, you know, that it's not just Western capitals here that, that we should be calling out. I mean, there's also questions we can ask of leaders in the global south themselves, right? I and mean, of course, the Iraq invasion was a violation of international law. Now, you know, there was Libya also a source of a lot of frustration and in parts of the world, the disgraceful vaccine inequality, climate finance, the sort of injustice of climate politics. You know, and you can obviously go, go further back. But Ukraine isn't responsible for any of that. I mean, Zelensky didn't invade Iraq. Ukrainians aren't to blame for the unequal vaccine distribution. And, and Russia's invasion is clearly a, a massive violation, as everybody says, of Ukraine's sovereignty, of its territorial integrity by a belligerent, bigger neighbour. Of course, countries have many different reasons for not wanting to break ties with, with Russia. But my sense is that, you know, maybe you could argue this both ways, but my sense is that the Kremlin would care more, might even be more willing to take a step back if more of the world was prepared to take a stronger line on um, on its aggression? I, I don't think we should rule out the importance of interest. I think oftentimes um, Western powers tend to, to talk about the global south as a bloc. And I, I leave China out of 
this to the moment. Um, or, and oftentimes talk about Africa as though each of these countries um, doesn't have very clear national interests as well. I think the other issue, um, Richard, is that these are countries that um, have choices. Those choices are, are based on their own sort of strategic imperatives. Some of them are short-term calculations um, that we shouldn't um, um, dismiss as well. The other thing that's worth pointing out, Richard, is that despite everything that we've said, something significant happened in the last few months. President Zelensky was talking to a number of the key capitals, talking directly to their parliaments, um, talking to US Congress, talking to the Security, um, Security Council, talking to the UK Parliament. And finally, he spoke to um, President Macky Sall, the AU, and significantly also he spoke to the African Union. Now, it's not clear, if you ask me, what did we gain from that beyond symbolism? It's not quite clear, but he put a case forward um, to the African Union, something that we said was very important, that he's got to come and talk to the continent. I'm speaking to you from Nairobi, um, Richard, where we know that the ambassador here, Ukrainian ambassador, you know, is also trying to make a case that their own position I think the other point that I think is worth emphasizing is that this is not about Ukraine. This is about the West's own history in a number of, of the countries that we're talking about. Um, so there, I think many sympathize with Ukrainians' um, plight, but they don't want to get caught up. They meaning the Africa continent, different countries, but I speak here also of the others um, in the global South, Latin, Latin American countries. Many sympathize with Ukrainians, with Ukraine's plight but they don't want to get caught up in a fight they perceive as pitting Russia versus the West. Also, they, they may simply prefer also not to antagonise Moscow because of those interests that we're talking about as well. But finally, Richard, I also think that, that this should cause some soul-searching in Western capitals about their own record over the past decades. This is also an indictment um, against Western capitals. And, and I think that's an important point, you know, that the West has to engage better um, with a number of the countries and engage more. Yeah, and of course it, it, it matters right now, I mean, especially because of something that we've talked about in previous episodes, that the, sort of, that the world is in this, this moment of flux, that clearly the post-Cold War, this brief unipolar moment, a US-led order of the last few decades is, is over, but it's not yet clear what's coming next and what com- what's coming next is likely to be shaped to a large degree by China's rise and how... Others in Asia and elsewhere respond to that competition between the US and China. You know, it's probably going to matter which side of that influential countries in the global south sit. It matters for the for the West, of course, but it probably also matters in terms of international institutions to some degree uh, norms, notwithstanding all the inconsistency that we've talked about in Western support for those norms. Comfort, you talked about not everything being about Ukraine, although obviously the Ukraine war, the global fallout have reverberated across a lot of other crises. So do you want to say a word or two about what else is on your radar? I mean, yes. I mean, the important point about Crisis Group and the reason for which Crisis Group, this is an organisation that doesn't just focus on the, the, the conflicts that are the headlines, but that we do focus on those forgotten conflicts and those that are not on the, the, the radar. So interspersed within the episodes, I'm really glad that we, we zoomed in on Afghanistan, you know, we ended 2021 with a very, the very, just a very sad 
um, situation in Afghanistan, the messy withdrawal um, by the United um, States and various allies. We warned about the, the terrible humanitarian um, crisis. The big concern um, today um, in Afghanistan, Richard, drought and hunger, coupled with a very devastating earthquake in a country that really already um, is in a very precarious and delicate situation as well. So the country is still in, in just of the grim humanitarian um, challenges, but also the, the reality check that we also have to deal with. The Taliban um, are the ones ruling the country and we have to find a way in which to, um, to sort of work with them um, to deal um, with the dire humanitarian um, consequences. So that was an important one. And Richard, I know you talked about Syria, another important issue for us and that we're watching. And I know that we're recording on the eve of an important um, Security Council um, renewal conversation at the Security Council um, about, you know, allowing UN agencies to deliver aid um, to rebel held areas in Iblid, um, a reminder again of the humanitarian crisis there. And, you know, if you're looking for a way in which Russia's invasion of Ukraine becomes a test for important files before the Security Council, um, the fate of this resolution and whether it will go through um, hangs in the balance. Um, two important episodes, Richards, that you did um, that I really sort of thought was important to remind our audience was about Ethiopia and Yemen. People were concerned that in the midst of the crisis um, of Ukraine that we would lose some important um, dividends, um, peace dividends, but international actors have managed to secure a truce in Ethiopia and in Yemen. Um, the key is whether they will hold, Ethiopia particularly, um, you know, we wrote just this week alone as we're recording about, you know, the fate of that welcomed um, the decision by both Tigrayan um, leaders and the federal government um, to pursue peace talks. Whether that would, whether it will hold, um, it's not clear, but both sides have come to the conclusion that they can't fight their way through peace at the moment. And then the, the, the other one, that I think is worth mentioning, Richard, um, and also because he brought it to my attention when I went to meet him, the Secretary General. I mean, it wasn't on my talking point, and he was the one who raised it, it was Sahel. Um, and we've continued to, to focus on the Sahel, very worrying developments um, there, but also for the entire West Africa region. And the, the podcast that struck me at the beginning of the year was one that you did with our Deputy um, Africa Director, Rinaldo, um, who, who, you know, did a very good sort of analysis of two coups in Mali, one in neighbouring Burkina. Um, then, you know, we had the coup in Guinea-Conakry. And it just shows you that after 10 or 15 years of heavy investment in West Africa by the UN and, in, and international actors, that this region is far from um, out of, of the woods in terms of crisis. And in fact, you know, as I speak, you know, the worrying situation in, in Burkina where just daily news um, of more attacks by jihadi forces just shows you just how, 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 how feeble that country is. Um, and as a reminder, Richard, of how, how one conflict bleeds into another. Um, Burkina is in trouble because of Burkina, but also because of the precarious situation with its neighbour, Mali. Yeah, and on that theme, sort of trouble spilling over. I mean, you could also talk about the the, the Great Lakes, of course. I mean, something else that's sort of very much on our agenda. We talked about it a few weeks ago, and when where things, as you know, very well, comfort have really been heating up over the past few months. I mean, just this week, I think Congolese President uh, Felix Tshisekedi warned Paul Kagame, his, his Rwandan counterpart, sort of not to get involved again in 
in Eastern DRC. I mean, and I think you know, there is this real danger that we've, we've highlighted of not just a return to proxy conflict, but maybe even direct fighting involving Rwandan, Ugandan, maybe even Burundian forces. You know, the risk of that again sort of playing out in the Congo's sort of long-suffering East uh, there's already been this uptick of violence related to the ADF that, again, we've talked about on the show, a, a Ugandan militant group, which has now declared itself part of ISIS. There's these mutual accusations by governments in the region about their support for various armed groups in the east. And maybe the other one I'd highlight is the Iran nuclear file, which is really sort of um, depressing. I mean, I think it looks increasingly unlikely now that the US and Iran get back to the nuclear deal. I mean, the contentious issue for some time, and there's listeners will know, has been this terrorist designation by the US of the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards, which Iran wants lifted. But from what I understand, the US has put pretty favourable conditions to lifting that designation on the table, which Iran has rejected. And I think it seems now that Tehran has just sort of decided that actually getting back to the deal may not really be worth it, in large part because if the Biden administration uh, does sign up, it only guarantees that the US is going to be in the in the in the deal for the next couple of years. I mean, if you have a change of administration in the US in 2024, you know the Biden administration can't guarantee the US stays in the deal that the sanctions stay lifted after that. And I think it's politically difficult for anyone in Tehran to put their name to um, to a restored JCPOA now for that reason. This sort of fool me once type type thing. It's just too politically contentious. To remind people, I mean, this just really matters. And when we talked about this earlier this year, it's just very unclear how the US, even under this administration, but especially under a different administration, Israel, others would respond to Iran with an ever shorter breakout time, with an ability to weaponize its uh, nuclear program very, very quickly. And I think that is really something to worry about and just sort of tragic because, you know, the deal... The JCPOA, for all its flaws, did put the nuclear issue, you know, for some years in a in a box, and now it's well and truly back out. Mm. Of course, you started your career trajectory, if um, for lack of a better choice of word, in in Latin America, and the one that put a smile on my face, partly because I, you know, one of the things that I've been doing the last six months is going to various program. Um, regional retreats, and I, I enjoyed the, the podcast on the eve of the elections in Colombia. And I wanted to get your, your take there. Good news, um, you know, in a peaceful transfer of power. But I'd be sort of interested in your, in your views now with a leftist candidate and former guerrilla, Gustavo Petro, um, coming through. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the episode on the, the TikTok king, Rudolfo Hernandez, who, as you say, uh, in the end lost. I mean, I think you know, this is in some ways a nice one to include because it, so far in Colombia, I think there's some, some good news in that Gustavo Petro, this leftist uh, president that just assumes power, I mean, potentially he really represents a shake-up to the political establishment. I mean, some real potential changes. You know, his candidacy, along with that of Hernandez, who was also a sort of political outsider, is really representative of the of the sort of anger that many Colombians, like many others uh, in Latin America, I mean, many people around the world, feel at their at their ruling elites, at their political establishment, that they're not able to address the problems that are that are affecting people's daily lives. So he really represents potentially some change, and yet the political establishment seems to have accepted his win very gracefully. I mean, these not it's not just the 
the outgoing president, uh, Ivan Duque. But there's these quite amazing pictures with uh, former president Alvaro Uribe, who is really sort of the establishment kingmaker, you know, bitterly opposed to, traditionally to sort of everything that Petro stands for. And there's these pictures of him hugging Petro and congratulating him. Now, you know, how long this is going to last is unclear, but for now, definitely, definitely good news. And I mean, maybe, I don't know, you want to say something about, about Somalia, which is, is similar. I mean, another transition itself was very bumpy, but it ended up as being you know, quite a smooth transfer of power again in Somalia. Yeah, you know, this offers Somalia a chance for a reset um, after, you know, incredibly divisive and, you know, a tense period, you know, significant um, reconciliation now amongst political elites, you know, at, you know, the community level. So this is, this is really good news now, you know, contrast that, you know, in terms of other elections that we're going to be sort of watching while we've got the good news coming out of Somalia, the one that we're deeply worried about um, is is the U.S. elections. You know, first the the midterm elections, but it's not the elections per se, but just the polarizing um, nature, the the polarizing and the tensions that we're seeing um, in the, in the United States today. And I recall our report in 2020, and it's clear it's clear to me that we need to revisit some of the the things that we said there and get ourselves ready for a very volatile period ahead for the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And you could look at the way the political establishment in Colombia or losing factions in Somalia accepted their defeat reasonably gracefully and how that contrasts with the refusal of former US President Donald Trump and much of his Republican Party to accept defeat in 2020. And I couldn't agree more that it's hard to talk about, you know, things that worry us without talking about what's happening in the US. And obviously, this comes against the backdrop of all the revelations of the 6th of January committee, the dangers of far-right violence, you know, what was an attempt to violently overturn an election result. And it's hard to think of a, a somewhere in a Western democracy where that's happened in, in recent history. But beyond that, there's also this just sort of basic erosion of US democracy that with some of the Supreme Court decisions, the curtailment of voter rights, this looming danger call it what it is, basically a minority rule, and what that means for avenues for democratic change, the longer-term health of US politics, the legitimacy of US institutions, and that's something, frankly, sad to end the season on this note, but something that should make everyone uneasy. I'd like to use the opportunity to also, you know, to to say a big thanks and appreciation to, to our staff, that, you know, even in the darkest moments, always teasing out ways in which to help conflict actors, policymakers think of ways to sort of diffuse tension. So always looking for, for a way out and never collapsing around the, the old line that there's no political will, but finding a, a way out um, of all the conundrums and dilemmas that we see in our work. Very good. Yeah, we've had uh, a lot of those colleagues on the podcast, of course, over the last season, which has been great. But we should say also that there's a huge number of our colleagues that do a wide array of different things behind the scenes to keep things afloat. So a big thanks and shout out to all of them too. Comfort, what I wanted to do to end, because you're always making fun of the way that I do the outro. uh, So I'm going to ask you for this last episode (laughs) to do it with me. Over to you. Thank you. So Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Comfortero. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on our website, crisisgroup.org. Follow us on Twitter at crisisgroup. 
We have transcripts for the shows. If you want to reference or check up on anything you've heard, they're also on our website. Thanks to our producers, Sam Mednek, Kevin Murphy, and Finn Johnson. And thanks also to Alex Vygorski, who helps out with production. And thanks, I should say, reflecting back to all our guests. Thanks very much also to you, Comfort, for joining today. And thanks for having me on again, um, Richard, and look forward to the next season. And a huge thanks to everyone who's tuned in today and over the past season. If you're away over the next few months, have a great and restful break. And if anything big happens, we'll be back with a special episode, I'm sure. But let's hope there's no need for that and that you can all tune in again for season three. Sorry, um, hold your fires production of the International Crisis Group. Um, no, no, come no, 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 come on, let's, let's do it properly. Hold <laughs> your fires a production of the International Hold your fire. This is Hold Your Fire, a production of the international crisis. You've got to get the international. Okay. Yeah, so, so Hold Your Fire is a production of the international crisis group. I'm Comfortero. There you go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, I'm, uh, and I'm Richard Atwood. Uh, and I can't remember the rest of it.